Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Imagine uh, you're having a conversation. Actually, imagine you overhear two other people having a conversation. One of the two people knows you well, and the other person doesn't know you at all. And the person who doesn't know you at all asks the person who knows you well, what is Luke like? What is so-and-so like? How would you describe Luke? What would you want that person to say about you? dangerous question to ask. What if the person who knows you well answered that by saying, Luke is pure. Now, I know no one's ever going to actually say that about me. This is a hypothetical scenario, of course. I wonder if someone did say that about you. So-and-so is pure. How would you feel about being described that way? Would you feel flattered by that? Um, Would you feel confused? Maybe even insulted by that? I suppose the way you answer that is dependent upon what you think of when you hear Jesus use that phrase, the pure in heart. What comes into your mind when you think about purity? What comes into your mind when you hear the word pure, someone who is puritanical, a prude, a bore, something angelic, innocence, something unattainable, a sex talk from your high school youth group? denying your desires. Probably we have various ideas in our minds about that word and its meaning. What does Jesus mean by it? That's our topic today. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus teaches, for they will see God. That is the sixth of eight Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes, as we've been learning, are these descriptions of kingdom people people that Jesus has come for and saved and who are now a part of his reign. So the Beatitudes are not like the Ten Commandments. They're not law. Rather, they're case studies of the kind of people Jesus comes for and descriptors of Christian character, of what it means to have the mind of Christ. And two things by way of reminder that will help orient us as we study the Beatitudes. First, each one of them is counterintuitive. They show us that God is primarily interested in um, what God's primarily interested in and the type of person, so to speak, that God wants to bring into his family. And, and, And they show us that God's value system is very often directly opposed to the world's value system and perhaps to your value system. We see in the Beatitudes that God values things like meekness, mourning, poverty of spirit, mercy, 
The world, on the other hand, values strength. It values triumph and power and riches and vengeance. The counterintuitive nature of the kingdom of God is seen in this beatitude, too, because purity is undoubtedly not something that our broader culture presently values. So the Beatitudes are counterintuitive, aren't they? And then secondly, the Beatitudes all make astounding promises. They promise that those whom Jesus saves and those who over the span of life reflect his kingdom values will have a full and a flourishing life both in the present and more fully in the future. Those who live in this way, Jesus has taught us, are are satisfied. They're recipients of mercy. They're children of God. And today we read, they will see God. So let's look at this beatitude for a few minutes together this morning. Let's break it into three parts. First, I want to show you the priority of a pure heart. Look with me at the priority of a pure heart. One of the significant pieces of scriptural teaching that this beatitude highlights is that Jesus Christ is concerned with the heart. Listen to me. Jesus is concerned with your heart. Your heart is his priority because your heart and my heart, they're the, the, the heart is the center of who we are. That's the meaning of the biblical usage of the word. Your heart is the real you. It's what calls the shots in your life. You always follow your heart. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the what? Hearts. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a man. And again, Matthew chapter 12, either make the tree good, Jesus says, and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus again and again tells us that he wants to engage us on the heart level. Why? Because our lives fall in line with who and what our hearts have affection for. So transformation and change only occurs in your life when your heart is transformed and changed. So so Jesus says that those who have pure, pure hearts will be happy, will be blessed, and will see God. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be pure in hearts? The word pure, as you might imagine, has various shades of meaning. In, in the ceremonial kind of law of the Old Testament that you read a lot about, if you read through the Old Testament, the word pure means unstained or, or to be cleansed from the taint, the, the stain of sin. Uh, that's one thing it means. Uh, another thing it means uh, has been highlighted by the Danish philosopher theologian Soren Kierkegaard, who wrote a book on this beatitude entitled purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart says Kierkegaard is to will one thing. And I believe that he's correct. We might not think of purity in that way first in our minds, but it definitely has that connotation. Purity is to be single-minded. It is to have no mixed motives, to have no dueling emotions. 
So when Jesus calls you and calls me into discipleship, into his way, he's calling us to a new frame of living out of the heart. He wants a pure heart. He wants an undivided inner self. He wants an internal holiness coupled with an internal commitment to him. God prioritizes internal transformation over external impression. God prioritizes internal transformation over external impression. One Bible story that I think highlights that truth so well is the narrative of King Saul and his follow-up king, King David. You kids might be familiar with that story. Saul, of course, was super impressive externally. In 1 Samuel, when we first encounter Saul, we read that he's, you know, a a 6'4", ruggedly handsome Jewish guy. He's impressive. He stands a head head and shoulders taller than any other man. He's strong. He's good-looking. He seems wise. He's intelligent. But when Saul gets into the pressure cooker that is spiritual leadership, uh, and when turmoil comes in his life, his weak inner life, his weak heart shows up very quickly and it ruins him. David, on the other hand, is described by God and by others as a man after God's own heart. While less impressive externally, David was able to survive and thrive even through very difficult years, which is why Samuel the prophet himself says in 1 Samuel 16, commenting on David and Saul, man looks on outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. The heart is Jesus's priority. Happy are those. Happy are those, Jesus says, whose hearts are after God's heart. They'll see God. The priority of a pure heart. Second, the problem. Some of you might feel a little bit uncomfortable, maybe even squeamish, hearing me talk about the priority of inner purity, the priority of a clean, undivided, unstained heart. And in a sense, all of us should feel a little bit uncomfortable and maybe even squeamish when we hear that kind of teaching from Jesus. And the reason we feel that way is because all of us share a similar problem. And the problem is this, none of our hearts are pure. Every single one of us are divided in our ambitions and in our affections. And every single one of us are stained and made dirty by our rebellion, by our rebellion against God, our King, in our thoughts and in our words and in our actions. The Bible uses a word for that. It calls it sin. Most people, I think, while they might not agree with sin language, would agree that our hearts are divided, that we are all to some degree impure. That, by the way, is the reason that most religions exist. Religion exists to attempt to, uh, to attempt to deal with the problem of our impurity when faced with a pure, divine, other being. But most people, and every religion save Christianity, attempt to address the problem of a pure heart by working from the outside in. 
That is, through some form of external conformity. Attempting to change from the outside in is the name of the game for most worldviews, for most philosophies, and for most world religions. But it's also a trap that Christian people fall into all the time. Even if you're here today and you believe Jesus is the Savior of the world, if you've committed your life to him in faith and repentance, all of us, in one way or another, fall prey to this trap in our living and in our thinking. And that is this, that if we act or look or feel or think certain ways on the outside, we can rid ourselves of impurity on the inside. It's a great trap for Christian people as well. And there's two specific ways that I think this trap of trying to solve the problem through outward change first shows up in our lives. Let me talk to you about them for just a second. The first trap is to believe that purity of heart means moralism. It's to believe that purity of heart means moralism. That is, that we can change via behavior modification. Moralism believes that how our lives appear to others is what matters the most. That how our lives appear to others is what matters the most, not how our hearts please God. Remember Saul and David. At least early on, Saul's life appeared to be very moral to others. Moralism is doing a lot of the right things, maybe even most of the right things, but for the wrong reasons. Moralists obey the rules. Do you obey the rules? You might be a moralist if you obey the rules to receive approval. And usually moralists are hardworking. They're usually smart. They're usually impressive, at least to other moralists. But they're also full of fear, and they have a lack of joy and acceptance with God. Moralism also thinks that the real problem with the world and the real problem in my life is something out there rather than in here. So if I can avoid the bad things out there, I will be pure. There's a movie that came out, I don't know, 12, 15 years ago now called Silver Linings Playbook. Some of you might have seen it. It stars Bradley Cooper, Jennifer Lawrence, uh, and Robert De Niro. And I thought it was a helpful movie in a lot of ways. Uh, Bradley Cooper plays Robert De Niro's son in the film, and he's got a lot of anger issues. This family grows up in Philadelphia, and having lived in Philadelphia for five years and knowing what Philadelphia Eagles fans can be like, I want to tell you this movie is very accurate. A lot of anger issues, and Bradley Cooper attends Eagles games, and he tailgates with his buddies before each game, and he usually gets riotously drunk and gets into a fight, and he's following in the footsteps of his father, played by Robert De Niro, who has been banned from attending any Eagles games for the rest of his life because he's been in so many fights. Did you know, by the way, that the old veteran stadium, this is not in my notes, so Dangerous ground here, but the old veteran stadium where the Philadelphia Eagles used to play had a jail in the basement of the stadium that was usually full by the end of every game. True story. Um, so Bradley Cooper goes to these Eagles games, gets in fights, and, and gets himself into more and more trouble each time. And his dad, you know, his dad doesn't want his son to keep getting into trouble. And so what he does is come up with a solution to, to fix his son's issues. And that is this. He's going to stay at home and watch all the Eagles games with his dad. Avoid the bad people out there and just watch the game at home with me. But you know what happens? They're still angry. They're still yelling. They're still throwing things at the wall. 
They still have the exact same heart attitude. They're just not hitting anyone. They're just not getting arrested. His behavior has mellowed and his anger is manifesting itself in more socially acceptable ways. But he certainly isn't changed. He's modified his behavior enough to exist in society in a way that will bring him less trouble. That's an example of moralism, of thinking that the problem in my life is what's out there that's infecting me rather than what Jesus says. What's inside of you is what defiles you. In the end, moralism leads to that state of being that we all despise, but that we're also all in one way or another guilty of. Hypocrisy. Jesus himself had some harsh words for moralistic hypocrites. Listen to what he says in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also appear outwardly righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus wants us to understand that behavior modification alone and external, external conformity alone does not purity of heart equal. The opposite, in fact. So that's one trap. A second trap that we can fall into when attempting to deal with our own impure hearts is the trap of idolatry. There's the trap of moralism, and then there's the trap of idolatry. And that is this. We want a pure heart. We want internal transformation, but, but we want all kinds of other things too. We want all kinds of other things too. Remember what Kierkegaard said, purity of heart is to will one thing. The trap is to think, the trap is to think that we can desire pure hearts and desire a whole lot of other things along with it just as much. Now, listen, to desire other things is not inherently wrong. But what idolatry is, is putting those desires in competition with or in superiority with our heart's desire for our Father and the Son and the Spirit. That is the essence of idolatry. Jesus tells a story about a man that he encountered later in Matthew chapter 19 that illustrates idolatry. You know the story of the rich young ruler, perhaps, He's a very, again, externally impressive young man. And he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And remember what Jesus says? Interestingly, Jesus says, obey the commandments. And then he says, oh yeah, done. Check, baby. Check mark. Done. And, and so Jesus, being a discerning and wise master teacher, and also being God and able to see inside this man's heart, identifies immediately what might be in competition with his love for God. And so he says, sell everything you possess and give it to the poor, and you'll have your treasure in heaven. Don't worry about it. And then come and follow me. And Matthew tells us that the young man heard this and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He loved Jesus, but he loved wealth, turns out, even more. Purity of heart is what Jesus calls us to later in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, where he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Listen, friends, Jesus is a radical. Jesus is a radical on this point. 
And Jesus' radical nature shows us here the uniqueness of the Christian gospel. Listen, only the Christian faith tells you that the problem we all have is deeper, far deeper than any behavior modification could ever address. Christianity cuts deeper because Jesus cuts deeper. Jesus understands that the real nature of the problem, the heart of the matter, if you will, and thus Christianity also says that we require a more radical solution because our problem goes so deep. Jesus says, you are on your own power incurably sick. You're incurably sick in the heart. Your hearts are divided. Your hearts are unclean. All of our hearts are tattered with shrapnel from the fall and from our own tragic mistakes and failures. We all require spiritual surgery, spiritual heart transplants that we cannot possibly perform on our own. That's how deep the problem is. When you think the problem can be fixed just by changing some habits, when you think the problem can be fixed by being more externally impressive, when you think the problem can be fixed by rearranging slightly some of your priorities, you're missing Jesus' point. The good news is that Jesus gives us exactly what we most need and could never do for ourselves. Let's look at that last, the promise, the promise of a pure heart. We see the priority of the heart, the problem, and the promise. Here's the promise. Jesus Christ gives us new hearts. Jesus Christ gives us freely pure hearts. The way into purity of heart, the only way is first to receive it from Jesus God grants to us what he requires of us. God makes this astounding promise to us, even in the Old Testament. And it's easy to imagine that Jesus had this promise in his mind as he utters this beatitude. Listen to what God tells us through the prophet Ezekiel 2,700 years ago. I will take you my people from the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Wow. Wow. God knows our problem of impurity even more deeply than we ourselves do. And so God in the gospel gives us new and pure hearts himself. 